So Dr. Albert Louis Zambone earned his PhD in history from the University of Oxford and has received a number of scholarships and awards in the field of early American history, including a Mellon Fellowship here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. So welcome back. Um, he hosts and produces the popular podcast, Historically Thinking, and is the author of Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, copies of which he'll be happy to sign for you after this lecture. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Al Zambone. Well, my thanks to Michael, uh, to Graham Dozier, to the Society of Colonial Wars in the state of Virginia, and also to the entire staff of the Virginia Historical Society. As uh, Michael said, I, this is not my first time here. In fact, in the acknowledgments to this book, I refer to the reading room upstairs <coughs> as my home away from home. And I was not just being polite, as my wife would agree. <laughs> Well, up on the screen you see an image of one of the treasures of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. It's a Peel portrait of Daniel Morgan of Virginia. On the cheek, you'll see a crease, something like a little divot. And on the lip, you'll see a sort of second philtrum, just to on the on your, if it was on your lip, it would be just to the left of the middle of the lip. Well, I'm pretty convinced, I'm pretty sure, that's where a Shawnee Indian musket ball went in Morgan's face as he was riding by Hanging Rock in what's now the state of West Virginia. Knocked out most of the teeth on the upper left side of his mouth, exited above his lip. Uh, Morgan did not fall from his horse, and it was a good horse, as he remembered, I'll say it was, and he managed to get away with his life and his hair, as you can also see. And that was not the most eventful moment in his life. There were many events which even are more eventful. He was by turns impoverished. Actually, he, would be, he was homeless. He was a laborer, a wagoner, a militia officer, a farmer, a slave owner, a rifleman, a brigadier general, congressional gold medal winner, one-time military governor of Western Pennsylvania, a one-term congressman in the United States House of Representatives, a Presbyterian convert and the owner of up to 125,000 acres of Western land, mostly in the Ohio Valley. And so when you talk about Daniel Morgan, there's a lot to talk about, there's a lot to consider. But when I accepted the invitation uh, to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, an institution that works to share the ever-evolving story of Virginia, it seemed that there's no better place to speak about Daniel Morgan and Virginia and Virginianess. So I'd like to think together with you about Daniel Morgan, the Virginian, and to think first about what it means to be a Virginian, both then and now, and what Virginia is and was. So in the next 30 or so minutes, I'll explain a little of how Morgan got ahead in colonial Virginia, how he experienced the revolution as a Virginian, and then how by the 1790s, Morgan seemed increasingly not to fit a new definition of what it meant to be a Virginian. While I'll be touching on Morgan as an entrepreneur, Morgan as a military commander, and Morgan as a politician, I do so in order to focus on Daniel Morgan, Virginian. But why Virginia? What makes Virginia special, even to someone like me, born in Philadelphia and raised in southern New Jersey? And if it's special, why is it? Well, for several reasons, I think. First, as a friend and mentor likes to point out, 
Virginia is not an abstraction, but is a defined constitutional order. To use Aristotle's definition, it is a polity, an organized society. And it has been a polity for precisely 400 years, which is an extraordinary longevity. That longevity, among other things, makes it interesting. And it has been throughout its entire history a self-conscious polity. It's also extraordinary to think that, realize, that people have been thinking about themselves as Virginians for longer than they've been thinking about themselves as Americans. That's what longevity does for you. Second, any polity that wants to last also has to be a culture. And cultures reinforce themselves and their values by the stories they tell about themselves to themselves. These culture-defining stories are best called myths. Myths are not synonymous with irreality or falsehood, just as history is not synonymous with the largest amount of reality or the biggest pile of, pile of facts that one can, can accumulate in footnotes. And as you know, Virginia has told a great many such stories to itself about itself. This building is full of them. The very fabric of the building has at least three stories integrated into it, and I'm sure I'm missing probably about three or four others. The novelist Walker Percy, in his, in his novel Lancelot, tells a story that is always near the front of my mind when thinking about Virginia and Virginians, and Daniel Morgan, it was right there as I was writing this book. Percy's protagonist, Lancelot Andrews Lamar, is a troubled man in a troubled world. He is consumed with rage against the modern age, and he imagines leading a third American revolution. It being the 70s, at first he imagines that he will lead it from California, and perhaps Big Sur. But eventually he concludes that the third American revolution must begin where the other two have, and that is in Virginia. But why? Because, he raves, Virginia is neither north nor south, but both and neither, betwixt and between, an island between two disasters, facing both, both the defunct and the foul and collapsing north, and the corrupt and Jesus hollering south. <laughs> you could go on at great length, because as Lancelot Andrews Lamar does, but the southerner began a skeptical Jeffersonian and has ended up a mafioso Billy Rand. California, that's where both of them come together. <laughs> no, I think what Walker Percy suggests here is the kernel of a new Virginia myth, a story that we could tell ourselves about ourselves. I think the words betwixt and between nicely reflect the tension in contemporary Virginia. We are formed by our history. We recognize that this dominion is shifting, but we are not always clear what it's shifting and changing to. More broadly, I think it also captures the tensions of what's like to live at this moment in American history and perhaps in the world history. The sense of we are shifting from the modern age into an age that will be titled we know not what. Certainly, betwixt and between echoes the tension between order and upheaval as colonial Virginia became revolutionary Virginia and revolutionary Virginia became Jeffersonian Virginia. Daniel Morgan's own Virginianess, his Virginianity, was formed by these tensions, oppositions, and contradictions. And I'd like to think through that betwixt and between this with you. And in doing so, I hope that you end up reflecting a little on what it means for us to be Virginians and what stories we want to be told.
about ourselves. So let's get to it. Daniel Morgan was not born in Virginia. He might have been born in New Jersey or Pennsylvania. He certainly lived in both places, but we don't really know anything about that. He was purposefully obscure about his origins. The first thing to know about Morgan is that when he showed up in what would shortly become Winchester, Virginia, he was homeless, he had clothes on his back, and he did not know his age. He never said anything about the family he left behind other than this. They came from Wales to the Delaware Valley in the 1720s. He left home after an argument with his father and started walking. He picked up the Great Wagon Road somewhere in Pennsylvania, spent three weeks in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, followed it down the Great Valley, and then across the Potomac and into Frederick County. And that was as much as Daniel Morgan ever shared about his past. His daughters did not even know their grandparents' names. They did not know if they had aunts or uncles. When anyone asked a direct question to Morgan about his origins till the end of his life, he would put an abrupt end to the conversation, as his first biographer said, which I would like to believe is a radical understatement. After arriving in the lower Shenandoah Valley, Morgan proceeded to get busy. He got work in the eastern half of the county, what's now Clark County, between Opecken Creek and the Shenandoah. First, he grubbed stumps out of what were becoming wheat fields. Then he managed a sawmill. Then he drove a wagon for someone else. And then he drove his own wagon as an independent owner-operator, taking goods over the Blue Ridge from the Shenandoah down to the fall line of the Rappahannock to the docks of Falmouth and Fredericksburg, from whence he would take another load back up over the Blue Ridge and into the valley. Now, settling in the part of Frederick County in which he did was probably the most important decision of Morgan's life. It meant that he was not living among German settlers, but amongst plantations owned by the Tidewater elite, which had been passed out in 1730 in a matter of days by Robert Carter I, AKA King Carter, to godsons, grandsons, nephews, great nephews, and just about anyone else that was around, and trying to pass it out before the royal governor gave away all the land to the Pennsylvania Dutch and the Scots-Irish. Morgan, surrounded by those scions of the Tidewater did business with them, hauled goods for them, and they became his patrons. All of colonial America was a hierarchy of some kind. But arguably, Virginia was a pyramidal hierarchy earlier and later than any other colony or state. And to advance in a hierarchy, hard work and cleverness were not enough. One also needed useful friendships. Friendships of obligation that could draw one step by step up the pyramid. That useful friendship is patronage, and Morgan proved adept at securing it, perhaps because he was always adept at making friends his whole life. Now, Morgan might seem an unusual beneficiary of patronage, or an unusual seeker after patronage. In the late 1750s and early 1760s, he was hauled before the Frederick County Court with at least a yearly frequency, if not more often. He was once in jail for allegedly burning down a barn. Another time, he was sued for stealing a horse. At other times, it was for a variety of criminal assault. And then more conventionally, as he eventually prospered, he was sued for debt, but everyone was sued for debt. But Morgan's actions over the 1760s show that he was a deeply ambitious man. He and a woman named Abigail Curry, who was one of uh, three women who were benefiting from Morgan's credit at a local store, 
Now you can see the records in the Library of Virginia. They eventually moved in together. Common law wedding, had two girls, Nancy and Betsy. Morgan began to acquire land and then acquire more land, meaning that he was soon able to vote under the requirements of colonial Virginia. And Morgan, more importantly, acquired learning. In 1764, Morgan could not sign his name. It was Daniel Morgan, his mark, X. By 1768, he could write a letter asking someone to hold off on a debt suit, which is one of the most important kind of business letters any Virginian wrote in the 1760s. And I think the reason why he decided to write was he also wanted to speak. The two are synonymous in the 18th century imagination. And speaking meant was the only way one could secure political office. You had to be able to read, understand the news of the day, and to be able to speak upon it to your neighbors. And one could not be illiterate and do that. Morgan wanted to rise up the way of honors that existed in the Virginia counties of the colonial period. He was a road surveyor in his parish first, one of the lowest offices available in Virginia, and then first lieutenant, and then a captain in the Frederick County Militia, where, among other things, he swore an oath to be absolutely obedient to George III of England, and that he wasn't a Catholic. As captain, he commanded a company in Dunmore's War, the last colonial war, fought in 1774 by the Virginians against the Shawnee in the Ohio Valley. And all the while, he continued to put a great deal of money into dressing for success. Even in 1762, when we have store records, he becomes the owner of a really unreasonable number of socks. And his tailor's bill for just one year, January 72 to January 1773, mentions, among other things, altering a red coat, a green coat, and a red jacket, making a fine cloth suit, making another coat color unspecified, and making a silk jacket. This is not a buckskin frontiersman, not, not always. He liked to impress the dress. And always there was that patronage. He lived very close to Lord Fairfax, and if Lord Fairfax was not directly his patron, then he was very much linked into Fairfax's network of patronage. Fairfax's network of friends gave him jobs and gave him positions. Moreover, at the moment, it most counted in May and June of 1775, his patrons came through to him, came through to him. In June 1775, Morgan was technically one of the first men to fight for the United Colonies in a truly national force. Shortly after adopting the New England Army outside Boston and appointing George Washington to command it, Congress requested companies of riflemen from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia to join the Army outside Boston. Morgan was made captain of the company from Frederick County by the county's Committee of Safety, its Patriot Alternative Government. And who was on that committee? Three men. One, Major Angus uh, MacDonald. Two, Isaac Zane. Three, the Reverend Charles Men Thruston. Angus MacDonald was a veteran of the losing side of the Jacobite Uprising of 1745, and he had been Morgan's direct superior during Dunmore's War, had led Morgan and his company on a raid up into Ohio. Isaac Zane was a Quaker owner of an iron forge and numerous other interests in the Lower Valley. He both did business with Morgan as well as sued him. Uh, based on their letters, they liked each other a lot. Charles Min Thruston was an, another veteran of Washington's Virginia Regiment. He had left as a lieutenant, decided to get ordained in the Anglican Church, went to Westminster in London for that privilege, came back, 
and ended up being pastor of the Frederick County Parish and probably the person who convinced Morgan and Abigail to have a proper church wedding in 1774. Uh, yeah, he lived in Iraq in early, in early Virginia, and a really interesting set of characters emerges. It's quite extraordinary. Now, had those three not been Morgan's friends and patrons, we might never have heard of him. That's the beauty of patronage if you have patrons. But they knew the man they were choosing for the job. He set off with his company with 16 or 18 more men that was required from Winchester on July 15th and arrived in Cambridge, Massachusetts on August 6th, 484 miles, give or take, in less than a month. And as Morgan proudly remembered, I did not lose a single man. Then and always, Morgan believed in both speed and discipline. Now, throughout the re revolution, Morgan continued to display himself and be seen as a Virginian. Everyone who mentions him from other colonies always notes that he is a Virginian and he is surrounded by Virginians. And in fact, in many ways, Morgan both suffered, usually suffered and rarely benefited from the interplay of Virginia and national politics that existed in the Continental Army. In October 1774, Morgan and his company were marching again, this time through the Maine woods, the advance of a force led by Benedict Arnold of Connecticut, a secret mission to attack the city of Quebec while another army led by Richard Montgomery attacked Quebec via Montreal. One Pennsylvania rifleman remembers Morgan's stentorian voice booming throughout the Maine woods and how when Morgan finally emerged from out of those woods, he was wearing only a loincloth and leggings which left his thighs open and exposed so that they were bleeding with and lacerated by thorns and bushes that he would just bull through as they carried their heavy bateau, their heavy wooden boats through the Maine woods. Rifleman Henry also remembered Morgan's zeal for discipline, how he once almost struck a Pennsylvania rifleman with a stick of firewood when he discharged his gun instead of more laboriously drawing the charge, and how Morgan insisted that his Virginians carry their bateau through the woods and over the heights of the Appalachians, even though the skins on their shoulders was worn bloody and ragged from carrying them. Riflemen from Pennsylvania began to pity Virginians for having Morgan as their commander. And as you can see from the expression on his face, he's definitely not amused. <laughs> the attack on Quebec was unsuccessful, as you, as you hopefully know, <laughs> though Morgan did his best to make Quebec a 14th colony. Arnold was wounded in one of the first shots of the battle. Montgomery was killed by what was very nearly the second shot. Morgan and his Virginians were ultimately killed or captured, and Morgan even injured his back, probably I'm a doctor of history, not of, of medicine, but maybe cracked his spine, maybe ruptured his disc. He felt when he fell on a cannon from about 10 feet. Prison did not agree with Morgan. It was even worse for his riflemen. The Virginians were seen by their soldiers from Pennsylvania and New England and by their opponents as being unusually tall and handsome. When Morgan uh, first started scouting out Quebec City, one of his uh, soldiers, George Merchant, was lost, was captured, and was shipped down the St. Lawrence, and the last ship to leave before the St. Lawrence iced over to London to be shown to the king as a prototype. This is a hunting shirt man from Virginia. This is what they look like. And they actually had him uh, exhibit the, his skill with a rifle before the king as well, which is very sporting of them when you think about it. <laughs> Another Pennsylvanian described the Virginians as beautiful boys who knew how to use a rifle, which I, which I love. While in jail in Quebec, those beautiful boys caught smallpox, 
and what other, other epidemical disease was present, and there were many. Of the 96 who crossed Potomac with Morgan headed for Cambridge, probably about 25 returned from captivity in Quebec. Now jump forward to another episode in Morgan's life. Spring of 1777, it's Morgan's relationship with the greatest Virginian of them all. It's unknown whether George Washington remembered Morgan from the French and Indian War. He must have known him from, from Washington's many dealings in the valley. Washington owned land near or next to Morgan's and his in-laws, as did Charles Washington, George's little brother. Whatever he remembered or knew, by March, well actually by earlier in 1776, Washington marked down Morgan as an officer of promise. While Morgan was on parole, just after he returned from the Quebec prison, Washington more secretly promoted him from captain to colonel, gave him command of the 11th Virginia Regiment, and of a corps of riflemen, a temporary collection of hunters and woodsmen taken from throughout the regiments of the Continental Army. By June 1777, Morgan had been exchanged, had arrived in New Jersey at the camp of the main army, and was building a cohesive unit through constant skirmishing and then by incessant marching in the July and August heat. In late August, even though Washington needed to stop the British Army commanded by William Howe from attacking Philadelphia, he sent Morgan north to, to assist in blocking another British Army, this one descending from Canada under the command of John Burgoyne, which threatened to seize the Hudson River Valley. And there, in September and October of 1777, around and about Venice Heights on the Hudson River, Morgan gained not only a national but even an international reputation. Once again commanded by Benedict Arnold, and under the overall command of his Virginia neighbor Horatio Gates, Morgan used his men like an enormous sniper rifle, killing officers, artillerymen, artillery horses, breaking apart opposing British formations. Even more importantly, in the days between the two battles of Saratoga, Morgan's riflemen engaged in nightly skirmishing and reconnaissance, keeping the British Army from doing its own reconnaissance, from foraging, or from generally having any idea of what in the world was going on. The end result was the first surrender of a British army in the American War of Independence, the principal reason for France's entry into the war. Saratoga was a victory with many architects, not least all those soldiers who came there to fight from across New York and New England. But it is impossible to imagine how it would have ended without the contributions of Daniel Morgan and his riflemen. Now, fast forward to June 1779. We underestimate how discontented so many Continental Army officers were, particularly if they had families or married with families. Glory and victory and honor were all very well, especially in the 18th century, but they could not take care of family and property. Morgan was born at Valley Forge, so he took leave for most of that winter. 1778 turned out to be not his best year of the war, and then 1779 turned out to be even worse. This was all for personal reasons, for reasons of honor which seem somewhat quaint and antiquated and suspicious to us. We wonder why Morgan did put up with bad, failure of promotion, why he couldn't put up with failing to get paid. But as he saw it, for the better part of a year, he had been commanding a brigade of the Virginia line as well as the 11th Virginia, and he was still only a colonel. Yet, when a new Corps of Light Infantry was formed, 
and a brigadier general was appointed to command it, he was passed over. Now, he was passed over for reasons of national army politics. Simply enough, Virginia was not allowed another brigadier general under the quota system through which Congress, which Congress had imposed to avoid incessant state politicking, and there was not a snowball's chance that Washington was going to change the rules to benefit another Virginian, even if he could or wanted to. But so far as Morgan was concerned, this amounted to taking away his victory, glory, and honor, and besides, he had mouths to feed back in the valley. So he resigned from the army and headed back to Virginia. And in many ways, if Washington had his way, because Washington was still furious about this uh, as late as a year later, Morgan never would have served in the Continental Army again. But by, 17, by the summer of 1780, some things had happened. His neighbor, Horatio Gates, had been named commander in the South following the fall of Charlestown, one of the worst defeats in the history of the American Army, in which, among, other <coughs> thing, among others, all the regiments, I mean all the regiments of the Virginia line were captured. Gates asked Morgan to come south with him and command the light infantry, command the light troops. Morgan agreed, but only if Congress made him a brigadier general. Gates could not promise that. He did not have it in his pocket. So Morgan stayed behind while Gates rode south. And Gates rode south, and at Camden in South Carolina, with what there was, what there remained of the Southern Army, he was defeated again, another awful, terrible defeat from which he fled, from which Horatio Gates fled at high speed. Going from Camden, South Carolina to Hillsborough, North Carolina in two days, which I think even in a car on back roads would be difficult. <laughs> when the news of Camden got to Shenandoah, Morgan did what I would like to believe was the only thing that Dan Morgan actually could do. He collected some friends who were willing to ride with him, packed his bags, saddled a horse, and headed south, leaving another horse behind him, which he sold here in Richmond to finance the journey. There are a lot of cinematic moments in Morgan's life, but that has to be one of my favorites. Morgan, Peter Bruin, who was part of the company that had gone with him to Boston and Quebec, fording the Shenandoah below Ashby's Gap, then riding up over the Blue Ridge on a sticky late Virginia summer day, and then down the slopes in the Fauquier County, heading south, not knowing what's ahead of him, but determined to be there anyway. And there, on a little field called the Cowpens, in the back country of South Carolina, Dan Morgan gained what fame he still has, unfortunately, which is mostly confined to Revolutionary War enthusiasts and military officers. When Morgan opposed a slightly smaller force led by a gifted young British soldier, and after at most an hour after the first shots were fired, Morgan had killed or captured 811 soldiers, the remainder riding away at top speed, proving again the 18th century infantryman's belief that no one had ever seen a dead cavalryman. <laughs> there, so far to the south, and even now, you drive down there, and I've done a lot recently, it's far to the south from Virginia. It's a different world, and yet he was surrounded by Virginians. In the third line at Cowpens that day, distributed amongst the Continental soldiers of Maryland and Delaware, were riflemen from Augusta, Rockbridge, and Fauquier counties. And leading many of them was Frank Triplett, Francis Triplett, whose family tavern in Fauquier County, Morgan often passed in his trips from the valley down to the falls of the Rappahannock. I say only in the interest of historical veracity, passed, I'm sure he actually stopped a lot as well. <laughs> 
Morgan's service in the Revolution concluded in a series of episodes within Virginia, as first Benedict Arnold and then Charles Cornwallis invaded it in late 1780 and through 1781. More or less through the force of his presence, Morgan put down Claypole's Rebellion in Hampshire County, in what's now the Lost River Valley of West Virginia. It was a tax and draft protest by Westerners against high-water politicians, a taste of things to come. Eventually, Morgan managed to take a force to Lafayette's assistance, but his body, which had been breaking down the winter, uh, throughout the winter of 1780, there are times he wrote to Nathaniel Green where I'm seized by such pain that I just drop in my feet. And then in April of 1781, he wrote, he said something extraordinary. He says, I, I have this headache, and it makes me black out, or like I go blind for a day, but a cold bath helps. <laughs> This is the kind of guy who, you know, got shot through the face, and the commanding officer at Fort Edward said, well, there's a soldier here shot through the face, but he doesn't seem that badly off. <laughs> when he finally got down to Richmond, the Petersburg area, to join Lafayette to start to guard against Cornwallis, looking for a possibility of once again fighting Bannister Tarleton, much to his rage, really, his utter, complete rage, his body broke down, he was once again confined to a bed, and then finally, when he was able to, rode away from the scene of an eventual victory. He returned before Washington's <coughs> arrival in Virginia with a large proportion of the main army from around New York City, and Morgan, again to his utter rage, his, his, his letter is kind of to Washington expressing that rage and sadness is kind of funny and sad all at once. Uh, Morgan did not see Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown. Yeah, Morgan is arguably not recognized as a Virginia hero. Um, up until the 1950s, uh, they didn't much remember him in Winchester either. And if uh, recent, my recent visits are any proof, uh, they've kind of forgotten who he is once again. At, when his name was remembered in the 19th century, it was often as a national hero rather than as a specifically Virginia hero. Think of such people as Patrick Henry, for example, who never really left the Commonwealth, uh, but became known outside the Commonwealth, yet was always a Virginia icon. Morgan never was. Why? Well, in part, I think, because that's the way he wanted it. When Morgan returned from captivity in Quebec, he was landed from a British ship on a beach in Elizabeth, New Jersey. He was the first out of the boat, and according to Rifleman Henry of Pennsylvania, Morgan fell on his face, kissing the ground, calling out, my country, my country. Now, if he did this, I do not think it was because he was on the soil of the state of his birth, which he had left so quickly and never mentioned again. He was kissing America. The Declaration of Independence had been issued just about a week or two prior to Morgan's return, but Morgan was already in July of 1776, Morgan was already a nationalist. And like many officers in the Continental Army, particularly generals, he remained a nationalist until his death. Like other Shenandoah Valley citizens and citizens of Western Virginia in general, Morgan was adamantly in favor of internal improvements. This will be a continual theme of Virginia history for the next 70 years. Morgan wanted roads. He wanted a Potomac Canal that would connect the Ohio River. He put his money behind that. He also joined with Carter Burrell, one of those tidewater aristocrats who had moved up the valley to get away from the mosquitoes and the depleted land to build a grain mill, a merchant mill that ground wheat into flour to be taken down in flatboats down the Shenandoah and the Potomac 
to Georgetown and Alexandria, where it could be shipped out. Morgan, by the 1785-1786, was doing business now not only with merchants in Falmouth and Fredericksburg and Dumfries and Alexandria, he was doing business with Lancaster and Philadelphia and Baltimore, another indication of things to come in the valley and divisions economically, socially, and culturally in Virginia itself. And those business, those commercial inclinations separated him from the developing views, political and cultural, of the Tidewater and the Piedmont. So that's one reason why he became a nationalist and not a Virginian. But he was further separated from the rest of Virginia in the 1790s, dramatically so. During the Whiskey Rebellion, he was a major general in the Virginia militia, and he once again led the light troops, but this time to push from Cumberland, Maryland, to Washington, Pennsylvania, and then on into Pittsburgh to overawe his fellow Americans, fellow Americans who had burned the home of his best friend, John Neville, who had been his best man, best man at Morgan's wedding, and exiled John and his son Presley, who was Morgan's son-in-law. Morgan's daughter was left behind in Pittsburgh, and he was basically going to her rescue, as he saw it, during the Whiskey Rebellion. Morgan's body was up to the challenge in March. He had a great time, broke the mouth of a tavern owner who was overcharging his soldiers for whiskey, <laughs> and rode into Pittsburgh with a small group of men, including John and Presley Neville and Alexander Hamilton. When most of the army returned back to Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, Morgan remained behind, more or less, as military governor of Western Pennsylvania. Not too many men in American history have served as military governor over their fellow citizens. Now this service and his attitudes did not endear him to the developing Democratic faction, which in Virginia was coalescing around Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And Morgan took massive and dramatic steps to make sure that he would not be so endeared. While stationed near Pittsburgh in 1794, he rode home to contest the congressional election against Robert Rutherford, the preferred Jeffersonian candidate. And he did so again in 1796, this time defeating Rutherford, much to James Madison's disgust. While Morgan was in Congress, his proudest moment was voting for the Alien Act. To his regret, he had to leave Philadelphia for Winchester before the Sedition came act, act came up to vote. But he would have voted for that too. And when he returned home, he set about working to nominate suitably Federalist Virginians to post in the new army that was being built to oppose a potential French invasion. And he made certain that so-and-so was a good Federalist and not a Democrat of any kind. He's, his letters to Washington are meticulous in this regard. He also even took out an ad in the Alexandria newspapers to the Northern District of Virginia militia, warning them, warning them of the threat of the Democratic Republican societies. These were the sort of the pro-Jeffersonian, pro-democratic, pro-French Revolution, sort of vaguely kind of talking societies, civic societies, which had been formed in Philadelphia beginning in the early 1790s. And Morgan saw them as the ones really behind the Whiskey Rebellion. And he was afraid that their infection was coming into Virginia. And they were gonna do things, uh, bad things, like encourage slaves to revolt. Um, interestingly enough, he kind of ruins himself with everybody in Virginia by both advocating gradual emancipation and warning about Jeffersonians encouraging slave revolts. That's like the worst of both worlds when you think about it. So no decent Jeffersonian Virginian, as the terms became increasingly synonymous, could ever regard Morgan as a Virginian. 
His national legacy and views were poisonous long before the 1830s. Had he chosen to be on Jefferson's team, I imagine Daniel Morgan might have become a folk hero akin to Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone. Davy Crockett made the, the right choice. He got killed at the Alamo, and he was a Jacksonian at just the right time. Um, Morgan did not make that choice. His political, his social, his cultural inclinations, they looked in a different direction. So in all these ways, Daniel Morgan was not a Virginian. He came from somewhere else. He was an advocate of the interests of the Shenandoah Valley when Western Virginia was already becoming politically marginalized. Tidewater was basically taking away votes from the Valley and the West in order to preserve their own power. And he was a nationalist and a federalist as the Federalist Party was briefly flourishing only to die again, shortly die again in Virginia. And moreover, he was an anti-Jeffersonian. Daniel Morgan does not fit into any neat Virginia myth. Daniel Morgan is not a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. On the other hand, <laughs> he thought he was. And more importantly, Daniel Morgan is one of those who created the polity, the culture, and the very landscape of Virginia. In many ways, as I suggested at the beginning, his betwixt and betweenness reflects something of our own era and our own confusion. I can think of no better way of concluding that point in this talk than by the conclusion that I make in the book. Morgan cannot be found on his battlefields. He spent less than a day at Cowpens, just around a month in South Carolina, perhaps four months at, four months at most in both the Carolinas. The Saratoga campaign, including journeys to and from, took at most three months. His battlefields are not his greatest legacy. He did harsh and necessary work there as he saw it, but he did not love them. He loved the lower valley of the Shenandoah, and he was one of the thousands who created it and called it home. In turn, the lower Shenandoah created him. Morgan was not his own creation. No one really is their own creation. Self-fashioning is not only an academic, but a popular concept in part because the self-made person is a concept that appeals to Americans of all times, all places, and all ideologies. We are, we like to believe, precisely who we make ourselves to be. But this is not so. We are also made by everything around us, society, culture, landscape, good fortune, providence. All these things grind at us, goad us, form us, mold us, direct us, however much we sometimes kick and bite against them. You will not find Morgan's presence beneath the walls of Quebec or at Freeman's Farm, not even at Cowpens. But if you stop for a while in the lower valley, perhaps by the sign that gives White Post its name, by the rocky waters of the Shenandoah, or the road that runs in front of Saratoga's long drive, on the lawn of Soldier's Rest, both the homes that he built, or by the stream as it run past Burl and Morgan's Mill, there you can still look about you and see what he made and what made him. May future generations tell that kind of story about us. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, I think 
through the entrance to the right, as I recall. And he's also, uh, not that far away from him, are some of the German soldiers who, in Winchester legend, were part of what they called the Dutch Mess. They were German speakers, they formed their own, basically a squad, it was a, a mess or a squad, it's the same thing in the Continental Army. And they went with him to, they went with him to Quebec, and they survived. They were one of the 25 that survived. Uh, they returned. One of them was the father and grandfather of great Shenandoah uh, Valley rifle makers, beautiful artisans, beautiful art. And the survivors, I think six out of those seven, or maybe all seven, fired their rifles over his grave at, at his funeral. Um, Morgan, uh, the home that he built up in Winchester, I have read that he did not want to use black slave labor and use British prisoners of war. Do you know anything about that? Yes. Well, he owned people as early as 1768, from what I can tell. When he died, there were about 12 enslaved people uh, that he passed on to his uh, daughter. He had a trust to go to Betsy Hurd, uh, whose, um, whose husband was uh, basically uh, an offensive drunk, let's put it that way. And Morgan's uh, great um, anxiety for the last years of his life is what will happen to Betsy and her family? What will happen to the money that he's been, the property that he's been accumulating? So he puts things in a trust uh, for her, and that includes 12 enslaved people. He also, uh, he also gives as a gift to two children, and I tried to find out more about this. He also gives enslaved people as a gift, along with livestock, to two children. So he had enslaved people uh, throughout his life. Um, it's unclear to me whether he had more on his land in Kentucky or not. I was not able to determine that. Uh, I thought 14 or 16 enslaved people seems a bit low given his other property. As to the building, this is very common. Um, Saratoga was legendarily built by Hessians who were in POW camp in Winchester. And it would be surprising if it had not been. Why? Wherever there was a POW camp, and there's an excellent book written by a fellow at Washington College of Maryland about the one in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's a very large one, lasted the entire war, 1775 and 1783. As soon as a new intake of prisoners came from a battle, farmers would be literally lined up around the block to buy labor. And under the rules, they could take that labor. In fact, there's a, some reason to believe that a British POW said, I'd rather be a POW working for money. I can make more as a POW that I can as a soldier, but I'll still be paid back pay when I rejoin the army. <laughs> That's a pretty sweet deal. Um, so the POWs were a tremendous source of labor to uh, farming economies that might have been labor poor, or were certainly labor poor because of people doing militia duty. Not necessarily continental army duty, but militia duty, three months, if it's the wrong time of year, that could be really bad, which is why it's so hard to get the militia to come out. So what you see in Charlottesville as well, uh, you can trace this in Charlottesville and Winchester and in Lancaster and in Frederick, Maryland. This is the string of POW camps along the backcountry, far enough away from the Royal Navy <laughs> so that they can't be busted out. You'll find people being used for labor in all those places. So I, I never found any direct proof that Morgan used soldiers from POW camp, but it would be, it would be shocking if he hadn't. Everyone else was. So when he died, he was a major general of militia 
kind of brigadier general and of the, the, the Empire. Empire. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. The, uh, when I was a student at the University of North Carolina almost 50 years ago, one of my professors was a man named Don Higginbotham who wrote a biography of Daniel Morgan. I'm wondering if you're familiar with that book. I, I imagine you, you are. And what kinds of uh, primary sources might have come to your attention that would not have been available to him, say, 50 years ago? I, actually, I think that book was more than 50 years ago that you it was ask published. A, you ask a terrible question. <laughs> You just had to do that, didn't you? <laughs> That's what happens when you let a Tar Heel in the room, isn't it? <laughs> well, um, Higgum, I mean, it is a, I have a deep personal story with that, actually. Higginbotham's biography of Morgan was the first monograph I ever read. I must have been about 10 or 12. Uh, I had read Burke Davis's, I think it was Burke Davis's, Heroes of the American Revolution, and became fixated with Dan Morgan. My mother, my sweet mother, actually made a hunting shirt for me to go Halloween as Dan Morgan. And much to my disgust, 40 years ago, no one knew who that was. <laughs> this book is an attempt to remedy their ignorance. So then when uh, I saw there was a, a large book about Dan Morgan at the Valley Forge store, my sweet aunt bought one for me, bought it for me, and I puzzled my way through it. Um, and I was... Fortunately, I was able to see Don, meet Don before he died and tell him how that kind of started me off as a historian in many ways with that book. So when I got the call to write a biography about Morgan, uh, my age, my editor could not have imagined how primed I was. That, as I say, the general had, been, had rent free space in my head for quite some time. Um, and what I found is Higginbottom's book is a marvel. Uh, he wrote it when he, it's his dissertation. I looked at his dissertation and the book. There's very few changes. Uh, what he did with shoe leather and three by five cards is just, it can't be done. It couldn't be done with the uh, internet. I told myself, dang it, I am going to find something that Higginbottom didn't. I think I might have found one or two things he did. Um, things like that have been emerged from the attics. There's still stuff in the attics. Uh, I, I refuse to believe we have, in the VHS, there's, in the library upstairs, the, sorry, the Museum of Virginia History and Culture, um, there is a one sheet of Pastor William Hill's notes that he used to, he was gonna use to write a biography of, of Morgan. There are only one sheet seems to exist. It's brilliant, uh, it's wonderful, and we, there must have been many more. Uh, James Graham uh, of New Orleans wrote the first biography, had access to all of them. They're, there, they're probably there somewhere. Um, one difference for me, so I tried, I found very little that Higginbottom didn't find. In fact, um, some things he found have disappeared, and not for any nefarious reasons, just because archives change. They get relabeled, they get re some people take them back. You know, they say, I don't want to give it to you, I'm going to give it to someone else. Uh, and then they get relabeled, and this, you know, archives are like life. Uh, they, they change all the time, they never, they never stay still. So there's some things that Don found that I couldn't find, as well as a few things that, he, that I found that he didn't have access to. Um, so I was not as successful in, in, in trying to outdo him. He was a brilliant researcher. One difference is he's 25 when he wrote that, so he was naive, and I'm a little cannier than he was when he wrote that.
that's one of the biggest differences. The difference is not necessarily the research, but the, the authors are a little different. So thanks for that question. Um, I wanted to ask you if you um, speak more on Calpens, because I discovered men in a given in Morgan at Calpens. Yeah. And he was, you know, and when I first went there 30 or 40 years ago, you know, the two things I just was overwhelmed with, and I didn't know anything about the Calpens and how important it was to the Revolutionary War outcome. And I didn't know anything about Daniel Morgan. Well, yeah, I feel the same way. Um, Calpens is, um, there are very few victories which involve the main army in the American Revolution, as any advocate of the militia would point out to Washington, probably. Um, And Calpens is one of them. Now, Calpens is only about a quarter of the troops or a third of the troops on the battlefield are from the main army, they're professional soldiers. The rest are militia. What Calpens is, and I, I, I have 10 minutes to conclusion, so I can, I can probably use that all this. I was hoping someone asked a Calpens question since I was avoiding it. I got another one, okay. I'll keep it down to five. Um, Calpens is a raid. Uh, Nathaniel Green wants to do something to counteract British occupation of South Carolina. Green understands insurgency. He understands that the longer uh, another force occupies the ground, the sooner that the people there will have to come to terms with him. Eventually, they're going to have to come to terms with the British who surround them. He wants to bust this up. He also wants to see if he can divide Charles Cornwallis' forces. And he wants to basically threaten Charleston, and he wants to have Morgan go into the back country to threaten a post called 96, Fort 96. It was a fortified post by that time. So he divides his army, which everyone says, oh, you shouldn't do that. It's very bad. Well, Green doesn't care because he realizes that Cornwallis either, res- if Cornwallis resists one wing of his divided army, then the other one will sneak towards 96 or Charleston. And if otherwise, he'll have to split his army. And in fact, Cornwallis does split his army, as Green thought he would. He sends Bannister Charlton, who's like a 23-year-old a law school dropout, who's turned into a genius cavalryman and, um, and raider. He sends him with about 900 men, uh, good soldiers for the most part, into the backcountry to find Morgan, stop him, stop him from getting to 96. Morgan, when he's in the backcountry, is over, country, uh, over land that for the entire season has been picked over uh, by the armies that were going to King's Mountain, by the armies that were going to all the various uh, militia patriot victories in the backcountry. And the militia all ride horses. So the horses eat, as any horse owner knows, an unreasonable amount of food. So they have been eating up the backcountry. There's very little to find there. So when Morgan gets there, he finds things have been picked over. He's there for only about a couple weeks, and then he hears Charlton is coming towards him. So he starts to move. He starts to move back towards North Carolina. He's done what he's supposed to do. Charlton catches up with him as Charlton moves fast. And uh, Calpens, which is literally a cowpens, it's a place where cattle are uh, herded. Uh, they spend the night on their way to being slaughtered in Charleston and being salted down and sent off to the Caribbean. Morgan decides to make his stand there. It's a strange place. When you visit, uh, I grew up thinking it was like a little hill. It's not. 
it's like a series of little divots or little knolls uh, and swales in, in, the, in the ground. And what you do when you walk around there is that you realize that Daniel Morgan understood terrain beautifully. And he basically sets up a series of traps for, he comes up with a collapsing bag defense. He's got a line of, he's got riders out down the road to slow Tarleton down. He's got a line of sharpshooters. Sharpshooters are commanded to fire twice, fall back to the next line, line of militia. Militia are commanded to fire two or three times, fall back, regroup, finding a third line of Continentals and Virginia riflemen who dominate the field, the back of the field. He's also got cavalry. And by the end of this, by the end of about 50 minutes, <clears throat> Tarleton's falling for it. Um, there's a couple moments where it looks like the British could win Calpans, but Morgan and the men he commands, Morgan's very lucky his entire life in just about everything. Uh, and he's very lucky as a commander in having great subordinates. He has fantastic men who are under his command. And they are tough. They've got five years of war. They've been seasoned. They know how to take advantage. When something bad happens, it doesn't phase them. Bad things always happen. They know that by now. Battles are full of bad things. The question is, who is going to be pushed off their game longer? And in the end, the British are pushed off their game longer than the Americans. They take advantage of British mistakes. The British don't take advantage of American mistakes. And he ends up swinging around his men sort of more or less in a kind of a double envelopment makes you know tacticians very happy swings around and basically traps every one every British uh, soldier who is not on a horse and some who are um, now is that important is it an important ba battle sort of um, it's not the most it's not the turning point of the revolution the campaign's important the campaign however is very important why because Cornwallis loses about a thousand soldiers that he cannot afford to lose and loses some of his best light troops, fast-moving raiders. He loses them to, to uh, Morgan. More importantly, he then pursues Morgan. He pursues Morgan hard into North Carolina, all the way up to Guilford Courthouse, up to modern Greensboro, where Morgan reunites with the rest of Greene's army, and they keep running. They run themselves all the way into Virginia, and Cornwallis keeps running after them until he's all the way at the Virginia border. And what does and this that is important. The the results of Calpens, the consequences of Calpens, as Don Higginbotham called them. Um, those are what's important about Calpens. Battles are never as important as campaigns. Uh, campaigns are really important. And at the end of it, Cornwallis has a very very tired and hungry army that cannot be supplied. And that's because he chose that Morgan ran, and Cornwallis chose to chase him. And that does get, start to set us up toward Yorktown. Could you talk a little more about why he became a Federalist rather than embracing more of a Jeffersonian philosophy? It was a complex answer. One is because he's in the Valley. Um, even in the 1860 election, uh, the Valley is a Whig all of Western Virginia is Whig enough that, as you, as you recall, some of it split off, and it hasn't come back. <laughs> and that wasn't their fault. That was people down here. That was, a, that was kind of on purpose. Uh, in the 1830 uh, Constitutional Convention, um, even after some reforms were made, Westerners were still 
you know, basically their vote counted for less. And um, there's attempts by, as the Tidewater, you know, aristocracy is in the Piedmont as well, there's attempts, there's attempts to co-opt the, um, the valley to the, their side. But even the 1860 election, if I recall correctly, um, I'm not going to look at Graham Dozier because he probably knows the answer. Um, I believe certainly Augusta County and most of the valley probably voted for the Constitutional Union candidate. They were, they were Whigs. They certainly weren't Republicans. I mean, who was in the South? But they were not. They were not Democrats. They were. They remained Whigs. So it was a long-standing political tradition. Morgan is one of the initiators of it. Why? Because they depend on commerce. By 1805-1810, I think Warren Hofstra has demonstrated there is not one foot of hydraulic power in the lower valley that is not being used to grind something or mill something. That means every foot of water power is being used to make stuff, grind flour, beat flat, whatever, and then ship it. So their interests are become very different. They are connected. They always have been connected to Philadelphia in some ways, and they become extremely connected, especially with the CNO, with the canal, and then with the railroad. You look at modern Clark County, it's filled with beautiful homes. Who are they built by? Baltimore merchants. Um, there's, a con there's a closer connection eventually to Baltimore than to Richmond. All right. So there's always that. He's, he initiates that. And I, he, I, it, I'm not saying he sees that. I'm saying geography in some ways determines where he's, he has to go. Second is, um, Morgan was homeless and now has property. He doesn't want that threatened. Now, I'm not sure Jefferson wanted to threaten his property, but he wasn't sure about that. <laughs> um, he, he allows us some doubts as to how what Jeffersonians will do with property. Um, and also, like every revolution has a great fundamental problem. And that is, when does this revolution end? Because it's possible for some revolutions to go all the way to the Cultural Revolution of 1968 in China. Let's just kill everybody. Let's completely remake the world. Every revolution has that problem. So every revolutionary, and Morgan's a revolutionary, has to decide where to stop the revolution. So the other answer is, why does he not join with Jefferson? Jefferson wants, and Madison, ultimately want to take the revolution farther than he wants to take it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Everybody.